Welcome to the Big Blue Podcast for Farragut High School, all graduating classes. Let's get into today's interview. All right, everybody, classmates and everyone, welcome back to the Big Blue Podcast. Today on the program, you're going to really enjoy this one, folks. We've got Mr. Doug Floyd. Doug, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on? What, That's a good question. Yeah, what's your current life status? What are you up to these days, 40 years in the making? What, what are you doing now? Well, let's see. What am I doing? I uh, I am an Anglican priest, uh, which is kind of odd. And then at the same time, I have a house church that I've had for 21 years. They're two different groups of people. <laughs> and I'm teaching. I teach students. You know, I, I, I tutor, I guess you'd say, mm-hmm. high school kids. And, uh, and, and anything else? I'm not. I have been writing for many years, but I'm not writing right now for businesses. But, All right. Well, we'll talk uh, about that when we get more into the history, for sure. And speaking of uh-oh. history, I think it's only fair to let the listeners know that me and you have a deep, deep, long history. I was thinking today, 1977 to now, <laughs> 45 years we've known each other. Yeah, it's amazing. I tell you. We've done all kinds of crazy stuff. I know. I mean, with your interview, I'm going to have to really regulate myself because you talk about some rabbit trails we could go down. <laughs> for example, for example, we got to tell everybody about the time we almost burnt down Knoxville. <laughs> oh, yeah, at my grandmother's house. <laughs> so it was summer, right? It was summer. Everything was dry, grass, dry, dry, dry. And we get this bright idea to fire off a few bottle rockets, right? Wasn't that what it was? I got a bad feeling about this. Exactly. And she lived in a big field. I mean, behind her house, it wasn't developed yet. There's like all this dry grass. Very bad feeling about this. So take it from there. What happened? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, it showed our two different ways we respond to danger, I guess. <laughs> we were shooting off uh, these bottle rockets, and that uh, field suddenly, part of it caught on fire. And my first response was to run away. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to run and call an emergency. They can help. Yeah. And and uh, you found a uh, metal sign and just threw it on the grass and put it back out. <laughs> Actually, it was an old, like, 40s, 50s car hood that was just junk laying around. And I thought, wow, they make a good, you know, arrester. And also make a good sled. <laughs> That's hilarious. But yeah, we did. We put it out. You went to get help anyway, I think. Did we get in trouble for that? I don't think so. Nope. Nope. I don't think anybody else ever knew it even happened. Oh, my gosh. If that field went up, it really would have been the whole cow in Chicago thing, I'm pretty sure. This is CN Breaking News. A scene of mayhem and carnage today in Knoxville, Tennessee, as two Farragut students started a fire that became out of control and has effectively burned the city down. We go to our CN correspondent, David Fairview, on the scene. Thanks, Frank. Yes, the fire has been compared to the Chicago Fire of 1871 and Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Nothing to move at here as Doug Floyd and Vic Moore await arraignment for the largest arson accident in U.S. history. 
you can read any fireworks uh, label on the back of it that the manufacturers put. None of them say shoot at a person. None of them say shoot at a vehicle, at a building, or anything like that. Questions abound as parents and local officials determine the cause of the fire. Some of the charges that these juveniles are facing include malicious damage to property uh, and unlawful use of fireworks. Some of the nearby citizens who were managed to escape speak out. Well, you know the building that sun's there in a couple of years. I guess this will uh, kind of go hand in hand. We'll have a scorching already done. I don't know. I can't figure it out. I looked out the window and it's like Gahanna. Preliminary reports suggest playing around with bottle rockets in a field of dry grass. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Anyway, so yeah, that's how we, me and Doug go back. And I tell you, man, I, it's been, we've, oh my goodness, I really got to regulate. I got to edit this over and over, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, and currently, you've been having some health issues. Let's not beat around the bush. What's been going on health-wise in your life? What's different and new now? At age, what, 58? Seven? Seven. Seven yeah. Now. All right, don't push it. Uh, well, I'm, uh, of course, some people may have known I had a kidney problem when I was in high school, so I had a kidney problem most of my life. I got a transplant about 15 years ago, so a young man gave me his kidney who's like part of our family yeah. was before that. I mean, he's, he was in our little house church. And, uh, so when COVID came around, I've been super cautious. I went and got every vaccine you could get. And nonetheless, my wife and I both got COVID last summer and I ended up in the hospital and I went into ICU, but I was actually, the odd thing was I didn't have, they never put me on a respirator or anything. My, I was, my lungs recovered pretty fast. And they put me in a uh, regular room, and I was I was probably going to get out. We thought within a week, and and something they gave me, I, we we thought it might have been heparin, but I don't know, caused me to have a a, a bleed in my stomach, mm. which practically killed me. Wow. Uh, I went out. Uh, my wife thought I was dying. Mm. I went out. I don't know how many times I went out, mm. but they gave me blood infusions and. I, uh, I came back, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but it's changed my whole life. Like my kidney went into fail, fail mode. So I'm back on dialysis again. Mm -hmm. And my body right now is still coming back, even though it's months from then, mm -hmm. my body's still getting stronger. I went almost bald and I couldn't walk in September. I was not able to walk. Mm -hmm. I had to relearn how to walk, uh, basically learn how to do everything again. And I still get dozy. Yeah. I was telling Vic before we started, I've, <laughs> I uh, have been known to be talking to people and fall asleep and not even know it. <laughs> but I'm getting stronger each, you know, month by month. Well, if you, if, you so, happen, if you happen to doze off during the podcast, I'm going to take advantage to probably go run and get like a snack or maybe take a, <laughs> a, a break. And then I'll come back and wake you up when I'm ready. <laughs> There we go. That's the way we'll do it. So don't worry, don't <laughs> I was talking to a young man the other day, sitting in my den, and then suddenly I looked around. And I thought, where am I? And I realized I'd fallen asleep. I said, how long have I been out? He said, oh, just five minutes. I thought you needed the rest. So. <laughs> it's like anyway, the, the David Byrne song, The Talking Heads. You know, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my office. Where am I? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> You know, Doug, we, we joke a lot, and humor, I mean, my goodness, humor, I always tell people it's the oil on the machinery of life, and you have been such a humorous inspiration for me as friends ever since I saw you back in 1977 at the bus stop, 
You had your <laughs> orange. It was that slash across your chest orange letting all the kids know, hey, I'm not one of you right now. I am in uniform. <laughs> and you're helping people on the bus. And you were big, too. You're, you're a tall man. And I'm like, hmm, i got to talk to this guy. What makes him tick? And somehow we just started talking and everything. And it's, it was like the guard over in England. I was trying to get you to break character. <laughs> but anyway, we started up a friendship back then. And I tell you, we've been through up and down and high and low and in and out and outer space and everything since then. And oh, yeah. I just, I cherish our relationship. And I'm glad to finally get you on this Big Blue podcast <laughs> so you can talk a little about it. Now, let's hear a little about from you. Let's do this. Let's stick to our outline. So, we talked about what's going on in you right now currently. So, let's do this. Let's go, um, let's go back in time a bit here. Let's start back in 1982 during the graduation era. And it's 1982. You, you handed the marble. I know you had a marble. And um, so <laughs> you graduate June 2nd. What's the first thing going through your mind now that you are free from high school? What do you What do you want to do with your life then? Uh, okay, that's a good question. One little note: when we handed in after we handed in the marble, I immediately handed in my uh, robe. And so my parents never took a picture of me <laughs> as a graduate. <laughs> my mom was so mad at me. Oh, uh, <laughs> but uh, such is life. Uh, and here's another good one. Uh, you know how your parents give you graduation gifts? My parents fixed my broken Atari machine. <laughs> <laughs> I remember so, that. that and I don't think I ever played it again either. But. Was that the 800 that went to the TV screen as a model? Oh, no, no. Remember the one that had the uh, Space Invaders? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doo-doo. Yeah, yeah. The only one that I think I ever really played. Only video games I ever played. Um <laughs> So, yeah, we graduate, and, uh, well, my first thought was I was going to go to Hollywood and make movies. Yeah. And, in fact, uh, I think we both thought that. Yeah. We made a couple uh, films in school together. Yeah, we had made movies in school. and Eight millimeter. I thought, we're funny enough to make it out there. We could do some comedy. And more than once, I've thought about doing that. <laughs> so I go to UT. My dad tells me. I had pretty laid back dad. So he was like, well, he was on a plane. Uh, well, here's how the story goes. He went to Lake Placid when he was preparing for the 82 World's Fair to do security stuff. And so he went to Lake Placid to see their security stuff. And he happened to get on the plane with uh, Hamilton, the skater, whatever his name is, his father. You Scott, know what I'm talking about? Scott, Scott Hamilton. Scott Hamilton's dad, okay. who was a. Uh, college professor. So my dad said, well, my dad's, my son's going to college. Where should he study? That guy said, well, if I were him, I'd learn how to write and how to speak. So he came back. He said, he told me that. So I thought, well, I like speech. We did speech in high school. So I thought I'd do speech in English. And uh, so that's how I made my decision. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, no plans, no skating around that decision uh, at all. I, I, I always tell people I went into college, I stumbled into college with no big plans to enjoy it and i enjoyed it (laughs) i didn't worry about money right my dad thought if you don't worry about if you have some skills you can always fall back on then you can do anything you want which is pretty much how my life has been i'm not it didn't make me wealthy but it gave me freedom to do anything i wanted so 
All right, now for the listener's benefit, we've got to go back a little bit. They're probably wondering, wait a minute, he said his dad was in security, he's flying to the, like, the Olympics. What the heck? Tell us briefly, what did your dad do as a profession? He was an FBI agent. Okay. And so he, we had lived, he's from here, but he, uh, Knoxville, mm-hmm. but he had lived, we had, I, I was raised in, uh, in the early part of my life in a suburb of New York City. Ordell, New Jersey, where he 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 was in New York following. This sounds exciting, but it was absolutely the most boring part of his career. He was following <laughs> Russian spies in New York City. You believe they are shipwrecked? Of course not. It must be secret American space program. These Americans, they think they can fool us. If Thurston Howell III can outwit two Russians, I hope it's one of your sneakiest plans, gentlemen. <laughs> Allow me to show you how this spy business really works. Agent 3625-36 reporting, sir. And uh, the only thing he got out of that for doing it for about eight years was how to tell very long jokes. <laughs> <laughs> because while they're on uh, sitting out in the middle of the night, it would go on for hours. And so in order to keep themselves occupied, they would tell long jokes. The police department, the FBI, and the CIA are all trying to prove that they have the best apprehending abilities to get criminals, right? Okay. So the president decides to give them a test. He releases a rabbit into the forest, and each of them has to catch it. Right? The police go in. They place animal informants throughout the forest. They question all plant mineral witnesses, and after three months of extensive investigations, they conclude the rabbits do not exist. The FBI goes in. After two weeks with no leads, they burn the forest, killing everything in it, including the rabbit, and they make no apologies. The rabbit had it coming. The CIA goes in. They come out two hours later with a badly beaten bear. The bear is yelling, okay, okay, I'm a rabbit, I'm a rabbit. Jeez, weed. <laughs> and this, so... Uh, you said Russian spies in New York City. Now, this is during, what was it, like the early 70s? 60s. 60s. The 60s. Right? Was that yeah. the Red Scare, right? The Red Scare was going on, right? Yeah, yeah. So they're, all they're doing is following these guys around, mm-hmm. just recording everything they do. It was... Uh, not the most exciting, although sometimes he drove a motorcycle and wore a disguise, so he had, you know, he, uh, a, a long hair and beard and stuff. You remember when he brought home the infrared, and back then it wasn't green that you saw in the dark, it was the red that you saw in the dark. It was a helmet, it looked like a welder's helmet, right? And it made you see in the dark, and we took it up to the bathroom in your house and closed, because your bathroom had no windows, and we shut the door pitch black and tried it out. That was a pretty cool device. Oh, yeah, it was cool. Yeah, he did get a lot of it. When he came to Tennessee, when his dad died, he got to come back to Tennessee uh-huh. and uh, to be with his mom. So he, uh, the Knoxville office was the most <laughs> exciting office he ever served at. He got to deal with bank robberies. He had a SWAT, SWAT team stuff, a hostage situation over in Dandridge. <laughs> so it was all full excitement. Yeah. And finally, he started training police officers. Oh, yeah. Uh, because he, he wanted to keep police. A lot of police officers, I think the training may be better today. I don't know, but a lot were getting killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he taught safety and, uh, you know, simple things. But he'd done this for years. So he, he, he taught a lot of things about how to keep officers from getting killed when they pull people over, which is a common danger situation. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, to you know. He had all kinds of crime scene investigation was another thing he taught. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he had a pretty exciting job in Knoxville. Not like that boring New York City where nothing ever happens. You know? Oh, yeah. I'm telling you what. 
<laughs> well, let, let's let's talk about some excitement. We got Doug Floyd now graduating high school, and um, you've already now been told a good guidance theory from the skater's dad to your dad. You should go with the <laughs> communication. So, you majored in this after after UT College, and yes, listeners, we both were on the same forensic speech and debate team at UT. Me and Doug both. You know, we're always competing oh, against yeah. each other. We couldn't stop that. But then after after UT, you went to a really cool master's program. Where did you end up? So I went to Virginia Beach. That was a few years. I was out of school for a little while. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I went there, just as a side note, I, I uh, worked with uh, homeless people and uh, alcoholics uh, on a ranch. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife and I got married and moved right onto this ranch. Oh yeah, I don't to... want to skip that time. Let's let's go back for just a second. Let's go yeah. Back. So um, we 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 got married. I was actually performing as a clown a whole bunch right then. This is kind of funny. I was trying to get a job as a clown because we got married. Uh, when we got married, I didn't even have a job. <laughs> I'd quit my job to get a better better job, and it didn't uh, pan out. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, But I was planning to do ministry stuff, if possible. But I was also doing clown work. So the day I uh, started working on this ranch, uh, McDonald's called me and wanted me to do Ronald McDonald for East Tennessee. Wait, hello? You don't say. You don't say. You don't say. Who was it? He didn't say. <laughs> but I turned him down because I'd already made a commitment to this ranch. Wow. So we did. So we, we lived on the ranch with these guys that had pretty rough backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I actually really liked it. I, I, I hit it off with them. I, I had these uh, meetings. I just sit with them. And the, originally, I was supposed to take them out and work. And mm-hmm. I, I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm not used to hard work. So I had to take them out. We'd chop down trees. I didn't even know how to use the equipment. They'd have to show me how to use it. Uh, at one point, we had we had a tra- tractor. And at one point, uh, somebody on the ranch, it wasn't me, fortunately, drove the tractor down into a ditch and we never could get it out. <laughs> it was a bunch of people that didn't know anything about ranching. Uh, and so, except some of the... Uh, uh, guys that were there to get therapy and but over time we ended up eating all the animals on the ranch because <laughs> we didn't have any food uh so i was doing that and and we were making uh kelly and i were literally making we, we were living under the poverty line but it was mm-hmm. great i i enjoyed it had a lot of fun kelly's my wife right, right. uh and so we uh, i was there at that church till 91 and then I wanted to go back and make films. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we went to Virginia Beach, mm-hmm. uh, Regent University, and I was going to learn how to make films. I thought, I don't think I wanted, I, I didn't know if I wanted to do ministry anymore. It was stressful. Mm-hmm. I worked every day, seven days a week, didn't take vacations. And uh, we, was so you it thinking was very hard. Going to Virginia Beach, now that was that's where Pat Robertson broadcast the 700 Club to the world on his studios. Were you thinking tie in somehow that way? Well, I just knew he had a film thing. Now, mm-hmm. this is a funny note about Pat Robertson. Because uh, he's he's known as a, a very political guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but while the whole time I was there, we had... So in the communication school, we didn't call our professors doctor. He's very laid back. Uh, but if you went over to the government school, of course, they'd be wearing suits. And it was like, felt like they were trying to make miniature Pat Robertsons, I guess. <laughs> but uh, in the communication school, we weren't that way. 
and I kind of created my own major, which I'll explain in a second. But uh, uh, the head of the communication school, uh, he, he, I mean, he wore jeans and a T-shirt to teach. And uh, Pat came, called that guy one day and wanted to take him to lunch. And he was just going to go in his jeans and T-shirt. And his coworkers was like, no, you need to dress in a suit. <laughs> And they took off parts of their suits to put up form a suit for him. <laughs> so he could be dressed up to go see Pat. And then a limousine comes and gets him and, and him and Pat go to lunch. And then Pat asks him, uh, during the lunch or at one point, maybe when they're at the end of the lunch, what was the biggest problem there at the college, the, at the uh, graduate school, uh, and and he thought a minute and then he said you are <laughs> uh it turns out that president was a he was a democrat and of course pat was a republican oh boy and pat uh when he said that pat said uh, all right i want you to be the president of the school from now on. <laughs> so the whole time i was at school he was the president of the school, and of course that made the government people furious. Oh wow! That Pat would appoint a, a Democrat to the BO. <laughs> yeah, but I, apparently he liked his style. You know, he's certainly honest. <laughs> yeah, so that gives you a sense of. It really impressed me with Pat because he's not up up close and personal. He wasn't quite so uh, uh, political the way you see it on the national news. Yeah, yeah. And then I ended up working for a company he owned, and uh, they paid my tuition. Wow. So that was pretty nice. That's when I first started working as a writer. They hired me as a writer, and uh, I, got, I, did all, I got to do all kinds of writing stuff and creative, mm -hmm. which is where I'm best at. And then, uh, so there, I was going to study film, and my, still, my intention was still to go to uh, New York or California. Mm -hmm. We did, my wife and I both worked on some films, uh, but it was considering that I was working full time, going to school and making films, it was really exhausting. And it made us uh, rethink whether or not I wanted to do make films. I like making, uh, doing theater stuff and comedy, mm -hmm. but uh, we ended, I ended up sort of creating my own program that combined rhetoric, the study of rhetoric with, uh, mm -hmm. the forming of community, uh, with the intention of maybe doing house church. And I worked for a, a Quaker church. So, mm -hmm. and of course that was, a, that's a whole different style. And my professor was one of my professors was Quaker at region. Every professor comes from a different background mm -hmm. and he wanted, he told me I was more Quaker than some Quakers. <laughs> Uh, Real briefly, give, uh, us a, give us a description of the Quaker uh, overall, like a paragraph of what Quakerism or the Quakers do. So the Quakers, uh, of course, emerge, if I remember correctly, during the English Civil War, uh, uh, George Fox. And, and he's trying to, uh, of course, Anglicanism. And it's funny because they're reacting against Anglicanism. <laughs> <laughs> So George Fox is reacting against the over formal, the, the formalism, and he wants to bring the life of the spirit into the community. Uh -huh. And so he emphasizes listening. And so this is the thing that the, the Quaker movement takes shape uh, in groups of people that listen. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they're quiet. Their services sometimes are, 
are quiet unless somebody feels they've heard something and then they stand up and speak. Mm-hmm. Everybody's free to speak. So there's no structure right. like, like, like within Anglicanism. And, and they don't have the formal uh, service like within Anglicanism. Right. So they can be, uh, and so they develop a very different kind of community. It's a very emphasis on community, but right. also on social justice. Right. So if you've ever heard of the color or the, uh, yeah, the color they call Quaker gray, the Quakers would not buy anything that was uh, used dyes because uh-huh. they wouldn't do anything that supported the slave slavery movement. Oh, okay. And so here you have social justice advocates from way back, from the yeah. very beginning. They're putting it into action. So, they're, you know, they're not just saying it. They're actually doing it as a lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. They're not posting memes online. <laughs> they're doing something yeah, that yeah. will re- require them to uh, change their lifestyle. So they're pretty impressive to me. Yeah. Uh, their, their commitment to social justice uh, and their commitment to live out that justice mm-hmm. Uh but anyway, and they emphasize community. And so to me, in our culture, uh, with so much short-term friendship, short-term everything, uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to study community, the development of long-term community. Mm-hmm. And so I studied all kinds of movements, all kinds of uh, thinkers and people who have made experiments. And a lot of experiments in community have failed. A lot of the, uh, you know, like in the, the, the 60s, a lot of these communes, Mm-hmm. were actually disasters places where girls were getting raped left mm-hmm. and right in fact i know a lady who's part of one and, and has talked about her own disastrous experience right. so a lot of times when people have attempted to do community they haven't done it very well mm-hmm. so i was trying to learn ways that would make you know how you can cultivate something well let me ask you, uh, let me interrupt for just a second because i know some of the listeners may be familiar with what's going on now i think since a few years back this new wave or new thinking in social about communitarianism so okay yeah. i'm wondering is the communitarian movement is it something that the quakers the mennonites the amish are kind of like smiling like yeah you now you get it right is this <laughs> is it all familiar at all the, the new and what they've done for years i i can't say what the quakers are responding to now but yeah the communitarian movement uh it's quite interesting uh especially if you have libertarian allegiances because it is in one sense uh it's the two could actually work together but it Mm -hmm. almost is the inverse in some ways of libertarianism which suggests that we all are individuals Right. And and the communitarians say actually we're not fully holy humans without a community mm-hmm. and we need to think about our society in community ways. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily advocating uh lots of laws to create community, but it's more about uh rethinking what it means to be people. Right. You know, and, and what, what it means to be connected to people. The value of the group and the value of the individual emerging together for the benefit of everyone you know yeah you think if you've read you may or may not have heard or read some of the stories of people coming from other countries to america uh coming from impoverished places and 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 now not all but some have moved back to their homes because they couldn't handle the loneliness of america so we don't always realize how lonely we are. There's plenty of writers that have captured it. Uh, 
right. and uh, have written books and studied it, especially sociologists. Mm -hmm. But Americans, uh, for instance, we have one of the highest uh, suicide rates, uh, men in their 50s, typically. Oh, yeah. And it, it loneliness is one of the main reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, talk about writing and, and writers on this subject. Let's get a little bit more back on our outline to when you were writing there for a living with Pat Robertson's company now. You're you're hired to write, <laughs> and you're, you're having the time of your life. You're learning skills. You're putting your concepts on paper and getting paid for it, too. Hey, that's even better. So at that point, how did that mix in with your um, master's programming, or program rather, um, with writing and now communicating? In, and what did you major in your master's program? Tell us about that. So I, I created an uh, individual program that was rooted in rhetoric, which most people are not really certain what rhetoric means, mm -hmm. and uh, ministry. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I worked. I looked at all kinds of alternate church forms, <laughs> and 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 studied under a variety of uh, ministers uh, from variety. I mean, different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and and so in rhetoric, it you know historically rhetoric, classic rhetoric was a good man speaking well. That's what Quintilian called a rhetorician. Mm -hmm. So the ancient rhetoric or classical rhetoric. Uh, was was how to speak well because the some of the most powerful people in culture were rhetoricians. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who addressed the Senate on behalf uh, uh, to, 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 on behalf of an issue. Let's say maybe it was to go to war for mm -hmm. for different issues. And so uh, throughout most of history, rhetoricians, uh, a formal rhetorician, had a pretty pretty important job. The kings of Europe always had a rhetorician on particularly England, because uh, the king couldn't make decisions without the parliament, went to raise taxes, let's say. But even today, a rhetorician, one form of rhetoric that we might see that is attached usually to the leaders are speechwriters. Mm -hmm. And so that's a form of rhetoric. But, but for the historical arc of rhetoric, sort of took a different turn. And for the most part, what rhetoric came to mean, and this is a little abstract, so I'm not going to talk about it long, but it has to do with... Uh, let's say how we uh, patterns of thinking or meaning uh, so patterns that shape a culture mm -hmm. so you can analyze any culture I could you know I and this is what I had to do you analyze anything from a business to a one person speaking to uh, a family a household and mm -hmm. and what are the patterns of meaning in that house how do they what what is you look at everything from the plants in front of the house or the lack of plants uh, the pictures on the wall, and you and you begin to see how are they forming meaning in their world. And so, if you under, begin to think about how that works in relation to community, you can see how uh, uh, within a church or within a local community, how certain things that are said and done, or even certain statues, for, let's say, or certain buildings, how they can uh, enhance or detract from the uh, forming of community and so those are the things i was interested in it helps you understand the whole issue with the statues last year regardless of whether you're for or against what was going on that is all rooted in patterns of meaning mm -hmm. and and how people were understanding those things and it was clear they needed to have a the two sides need a way to have a conversation so that's one of the things i studied was a, a jewish thinker named martin buber uh who, who emphasized how to bring two people, two kinds of people together to have a conversation. 
And so I've tried to work at that ever since I graduated. And so I've worked in churches or uh, in in businesses. I've worked for Electron, uh, Philbus Magnavox, and I brought that kind of training in there to think about how they communicated. Mm-hmm. So that gives you a little bit of idea what I studied. Okay, so now with the study of rhetoric and understanding its importance in society, and now it's part of your education, are you in the back of your mind thinking to yourself, okay, I'm going to go back to Tennessee, I'm going to use all these skills, start a house church, and let's get the discussion talking. Did you really want to have a, a societal-wide change or small group dynamic? What was going through your mind? Okay, okay, so this is kind of crazy, because here we had left my intention to go into film or do something in the arts. I, I you know, love the arts, so uh, either to go to New York or Los Angeles, and then I get I start going down this community road, uh, which really resonates with me much more deeply. Uh, and and so now I would think of art in relation to community. So why in the world would I come back to Tennessee? Well, I actually heard a speaker while I was in Virginia talking about how one of the things that puzzles many other countries is uh, the lack of connection between. I guess you'd say children and parents, like how we tend to move away from our parents, tend to form lives that are so completely separate. He was actually commenting on how they had watched the, the Academy Awards that year. And it was, a, I don't know what the, these people, what country they were from, but they were uh, surprised and upset, I think, by the fact that not one person who won an award that year thanked their parents. And so that, that made me really think about if I really believe in forming community, uh, I should move back home and, and be near to my, the rest of my family. So we did, and we made a commitment to uh, eat once a week. And this was in the 90s, and we still eat together once a week. So uh, we, we've kept to that. And, and so uh, one of the people, I didn't study him extensively in co- uh, graduate school, but he might put it in better words than I could. One of the things that if you want to change the country, uh, you have to you have to do something small and you have to do it right. So Wendell Berry, who was a great writer, uh, wrote in New York City, as he back in the '60s, he began to he decided to return to the family farm, and he writes. I, I think he writes longhand. He won't use uh, computers and stuff. He uh, and he and he cultivated a farm, but that's his way of trying to change our country. It sounds like, oh, that's a failed attempt. But actually, if you had, if all people started doing something uh, well, we don't all have to give up computer, but if we all learned how to do something well, we, uh, uh, and, and, and form deep relationships to the people around us, we actually would change the country. Yeah. You know? It reminds me of that statement uh, can one person make a difference? You know? Yeah, yeah, and there is a famous quote, which I couldn't quote, but it goes along these lines, you know, to do one thing well. And and to do what you can do, that's what it says, is to do what you can do. So we, I decided, well, what I can do is I can try to form a community. I would I would have liked to taught, uh, you know, gone on and got my doctorate and become a professor, but I also thought I'd rather open up the academy to the people who don't have access. Uh, that, that my experience of working with those homeless people Mm-hmm. gave me a heart for the blue collar world. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wanted to uh, connect with people who had never, never had an opportunity to get college and stuff. 
And so the way I did it was with a house church. And, and I, I actually assumed it would be a lot of young people. And all the people that came to it were older than me. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, it became exactly what I wanted. Now, I did some crazy stuff. I started out having a, a true Quaker meeting. I didn't, didn't talk. <laughs> we just sat around. We, ate, we did eat. And then just to see what happened. But gradually, we did form some patterns that became unique to that group. Mm-hmm. We had a, a like one guy came and joined us that had been a, a hermit for 15 years. Uh-huh. And uh, you met some of these people. Yeah. Uh, I think. It's a great and, group. And, yeah, I was part of that group for a while there. It was interesting. I love the way you ran it, you know, literally. I mean, you weren't really facilitating. You didn't have much of a facilitation job to do. It kind of lived and breathed and had its own facilitation. Yeah. Every once in a while, you throw in an idea for everybody to talk about, which was needed, you know. <laughs> yeah, I was not. It, I did. I, that was my goal: was not to be the apparent leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I was leading it in some sense, but for the most part, to let it go where it would. And it's very uncomfortable, and it's very difficult to run a meeting like that because you might have an idea of what you want to do, and it goes in a completely different direction. <laughs> for instance, there was one guy that. Uh, Every time I'd ask, if I ask a question of the group, see, get us to respond, he would immediately start talking about something else. Well, it was, it was, it was several years before I learned he was deaf in one ear. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> and he didn't, he wouldn't hear me. And so he had, he had a hard time. Uh-huh. So he's the kind of guy that would not normally fit in a group because he had a hard time in that process of dialogue. And yet he became a, a, a vital part of the group, you know? <laughs> that, and so yeah. that was what was valuable to me was it, became a group and still is mm-hmm. a group of people that have very uh, kind of quirky quirky backgrounds quirky differences mm-hmm. people that are completely different politically we've had arguments in the group before <laughs> mm-hmm. anything really bad and you know knock down drag out <laughs> oh no no people have been respectful but uh yeah when it, it comes to uh you know political stuff uh there were some things, one pastor who was a, a, a Lutheran pastor and then a lady, I don't know what church she was from, they had very different ideas about political uh, social justice. Mm-hmm. And uh, they almost got into an argument before. But, but, but me, it was great me, because they're still family. Right. But let me guess, at the, end of, at the end of the evening, after the dust settles, they shake hands, hug each other, and they go on and no hard feelings. And, you know, yeah. I just interviewed Adam um, Brown from Tennessee School of Beauty. He he talked about coming up in our big giant high school as a Jewish person, faith of Jewishness, and having to lie about certain things. But you know, one thing I really like about the way that the Jewish families, when they when they engage around the dinner table, they will yell and scream and stomp and break dishes. <laughs> but you know, at the end, they're all cleaning up together. We're family, but they got their points out. You know. <laughs> yeah, this is actually. So just as uh, uh, related to our high school, this track in life, which I didn't plan to do, it shaped, re-changed the, me in so many ways. Because when we were in high school, uh, like you and I stomped out of a class that was, <laughs> were they listening to uh, Jesus Christ Superstar? And uh, there were so many times I was so close-minded and judgmental. And uh, this way of life changed me and made room for people that were very different than me mm-hmm. uh, and and has allowed me to build some very different kinds of friends as you have as well but it, it, it and so it's it's been important in my own personal formation 
And I think it's also taught other people that sometimes when you don't agree with someone, it actually turns out you might you might learn from each other if you learn how to talk about it and don't just be afraid that you're going to offend somebody. Yeah, yeah. Open dialogue, open-minded, a tough skin, open-minded, teachable, and you go far in life. Absolutely. I tell that people to people all the time. Um, let's talk about some of this pressure release. Do you remember when we used to play Monopoly? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. There's a documentary right now, I think it's on Prime, about the, the Monopoly championships. And every once in a while, they'll talk about how when they were learning how to play, they did what you did often. And that uh, is... Yeah. Okay, right? You know, we are talking about Olympics earlier. I'm going to give you a nine on that flipping of the board. <laughs> I could not play Monopoly, or my brother had the Trump game. had the same experience. I couldn't play those games without ending up flipping the board. And usually cursing, which was funny because I don't curse, but I, I, I would usually uh, let out a round of something. <laughs> so that's another personal anecdote I got to throw in there because I love play. I kept saying to myself, "Do I do I kind of like let Doug kind of you know get a couple of these properties, or do I go for the jugular, knowing the game will not end anyway?" <laughs> You know, I don't think we ever came to a better end of a game, if unless you were like you know on top, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, probably not. But that was I good was... though to get that out. I mean, you could have just said, okay, you know, held it all in. But yeah, you know, emotionally, we got to get that out sometimes. All right, so yeah. let's get back on our on our outline. Um, and before we do, I want you to define for listeners Quakerism. Why were they named the word Quaker? Does that have something to do with oil or oatmeal? What is that? Oh no 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 no! That was like when the spirit would hit him. The idea of quaking. Okay. So they were moving physically from an emotional uh, response. Yeah, even though they, they didn't always quake, but that was sort of a bad nickname given to them. Okay, yeah. The yeah. outsiders in the back row going, hey, look at those people, you know. All right. Okay, good. Well, let's get back on track here. So now you've gone through your master's program. You've got the rhetoric. You're studying. You've graduated. And I remember when I went to your graduation service, I took my jacket off the they yelled at me, put your name out there. Because they announced everybody's name. And, of course, I have to be the guy making all the attention. So I slung my jacket in the air and yelled, "Woohoo!" And I think Pat Robertson said to the audience, well, he's excited you're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was You You got him to stop the ceremony. <laughs> that was hilarious. Anyway. All right, so now you've graduated and you've decided, you know, you're going to involve family. You're not going to desert. You're going to actually be a part of community. You're going to use your skills to keep things together and enjoy it. So now you're back in big Knox Angeles and you start the home church. You've got the house. And um, what uh, what else was on your agenda? What was next? You okay, know, so I come back and uh, it was actually hard coming back to Knoxville, you know, because... Uh, there was so much opportunity in Virginia where we were, but I wanted to do try to live out that reality. But I also had to get a job to support the things I like to do. And so I uh, ended up, I did a few side things, but I ended up becoming a writer for Phillips Magnavox when they were here. And they had never hired a writer. And that's happened most of the time when I've done writing for company, corporate level company writing i'm usually the first writer they've ever hired and so uh that's pretty amazing i mean you must have been pretty yeah. darn good right <laughs> oh yeah so i i was at phillips magnavox and they didn't know what to do with me at first they hired me because they had a few things they wanted me to do 
And so I, uh, I was able to create my own job for a lot of like at Phillips and some other places. So when I first went there, I told them, Hey, I'm into creative thinking, creative studies. Uh, let me do creative training for our whole department. And, uh, and this is a pretty, uh, you know, stripped down, uh, what do you call it? Laced up, buttoned up corporate office. And I took them away for two days of play <laughs> and they loved it. And they let me do a, a, a weekly lunch for any employee that wanted to do it, where we, I played creative games with them. And so that was a lot of fun because I was, uh, it sounds terrible, but I was at work, you know, basically it felt like every day I was goofing off all day, just playing with people. <laughs> But I was actually creative, teaching people some creative patterns of thinking. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was really a lot of fun for me. I just, I did actually have to do some serious writing. Mm -hmm. They wanted me to be a a proofer, which I I told them I'm not good at proofing. I'm a writer. <laughs> I'm a creative, not a uh, not a, not a. I'm not into grammar and none of that stuff. I'm into ideas. <laughs> mm -hmm. But nonetheless. Uh, I, so I worked with Phillips Magnavox and what I was trying to do in my mind was build community within the corporate uh, setting. Mm -hmm. And actually it was, the corporate setting was very receptive to it. Uh, I well, found that, uh, I wanted to when ask I went you, there, go ahead, finish. I thought I was going to ask you a question. Well, when I went there, it felt like people were not relaxed enough. And I, I hoped I helped connected the team. Uh, I mean, I, that was certainly what I was trying to do. How, how do adults play? What did you do? I mean, did you go back to fourth, fifth grade and pull some of that stuff out to be a child again? Or what, what <laughs> idea? How do adults play? I did. So I did use some form of toys, but I would uh, do, uh, in one sense, this is a simplified form of uh, brain games or what Einstein called thought experiments is teaching people how to how to push their ideas and think in new ways. So you might give them an object and then try to ask, ask them to, to give uh, uh, different uses for that object. Mm -hmm. And then when they feel like they've run out of ideas, then to tell them, well, what if they could switch properties and like, what if they could change, use just properties from that project? Like could, how, how, if you have a spring in your hands, uh, that uh, that motion of the spring what if you could expand it make it really big and, and and make things pop up in the air or what if you could take the color blue off a car and use that blue in a different way these so you're trying to push people how things work and then you there are games you can play where you ask people what what would be the advantage of a glass uh mailbox mm -hmm. obviously we can see the disadvantages <laughs> so you take a series of things that seem like they have all disadvantages and try to get people to think of advantages and uh so this uh okay. some of this was developed some of the ideas i was using were developed by uh business people that were doing creative thinking stuff at, at a large level and so we did i did stuff with blocks a lot people could build things <laughs> i'd make teams work together to build something out of the odd objects they have that had to be productive or i we also had people make a human machine with their team you know that produced a product uh, so anyway any number of stuff like that uh and people laugh a lot and and it's sometimes the first time they've cut up in, in a, a work setting yeah uh, 
but it, it energizes them when they go back to their regular job. Right. Now later, when I worked at Phillips, that I got switched to a department that did prototyping, which was pure. You know that whole department. Everybody was doing creative things. So my job was to help do the initial brainstorming with teams, and then to uh, often to talk to clients. Just here's a uh, <laughs> in that department. Uh, the preacher, I mean, the uh, my boss called me a preacher, and he didn't know I was a preacher. <laughs> but he said, he said, uh, you got more bullshit than anybody I know. <laughs> oh, I guess I might not supposed to be curse on here. I don't know. Oh no, it's fine. But, it's internet. So, <laughs> but anyway, that was uh, that was funny because uh, he didn't know I really was a preacher until <laughs> a little later. He didn't like Christians, but he let me pray for the pray for our christmas party oh well, uh, that was sweet so, so somehow he he liked uh my goofball personality oh while i was there this is another thing he let that uh, uh boss let me do i want a potato <laughs> from our our cafeteria as a potato stuffed animal so i i set out uh i built uh, displays every a new display with Sp Spuddy Buddy was his name. Uh, I'd put uh, like clothes on him like he was going to the beach. Spuddy Buddy at the beach, or uh, every week I changed the uh, display like he was. We were following him through different <laughs> experiences, and they, at one point they were gonna they they did eventually cut that whole department. So I hung. This was a little bit too far. I hung Spuddy Buddy from the ceiling. Uh -oh. And had to put a gun in his hand, and I I called it going postal. <laughs> oh, no. I was asked to take that that particular display down. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I can see within reason why it might affect some people. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I always wanted to push the envelope oh, wherever gosh. I was at. Oh yeah, and you didn't even have to put the envelope in the freezer to loosen it. You just push that thing. <laughs> <laughs> that is well. You remind me of another funny story, almost a disaster of a protocol. Um, another anecdote, Doug and Vic stories number three, I guess this is. If you remember on Club Lacan, the twenty-eighth story of the United American Building, now it's called something else. Back in the eighty, mid eighty, early eighties, you were outfitted as a uh, a magician clown. You got me on board on the side gig as a juggling clown. And oh, yeah. we went up, remember Ramona? Ramona one of Ramona's gigs. And yeah. we want, we're, this is a posh. I mean, this is like, what, three, $400 a plate, whatever they're doing up there. And we're the entertainment. And uh, <laughs> we're up there, and I had this exploding tennis ball that was already broken apart and another ball inside. And as I juggle it, you know, the little pieces come off, and I catch the inside ball. Well, I'm doing this in front of a very expensive wine-laden glass table of everybody, and all of a sudden the ball explodes and knocks over wine glass and onto their table and you were looking at me in horror like oh um i don't i, I don't know this guy <laughs> that is awesome but yeah talk yeah, about yeah. those days you could actually make balloon animals i mean big oh, ones yes, nice we did. ones this was when it was that was a new thing i think we had but yeah we were i started I just, you know, I love doing magic. Oh, yeah, we didn't even talk about magic. So oh, yeah, I've done man. that my whole life. And uh, I think we were walking uh, downtown one day, and we walked into Big Don's Costumer. Oh, yeah. And when it was in uh, the old city. And and Ramona, 
we talked to Ramona. Next thing you know, I was doing a lot of shows for Ramona. Oh, yeah. She loved you. She loved your whole thing, your spirit, your attitude, and your talent. You know, you were and a member of thinking, the International Brotherhood of Magicians. I mean, that's highfalutin stuff there. <laughs> I was thinking about it the other day. We were. So we were listening, as as were most a lot of people our age, to to Saturday Night Live and uh, watching uh, Animal House and all that stuff. So I patterned my magic act after John Belushi. Oh yeah. yeah. So I would accidentally broke a lot of stuff when I performed because I'd throw it and. Uh, <laughs> but it, it it the even the the the, I, the International Brotherhood guys gave me I knocked I came and performed for them once. When I was, uh, I, I don't know if this is when I was first starting, but I rigged the table so that when I walked up, I would knock the table over and all the magic would fall into the floor. <laughs> it was so different to them that uh, I think I got uh, acceptance among those guys because I was such a weird, doing weird stuff. Crazy. Uh, what was it? The Ostinini? What's his name? Ostinini. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was an engineer named Ostinini that did magic. <laughs> But uh, it was a lot of engineers. Who knew that a lot of uh, people attracted to magic are engineers? And, and older, too, uh, much older than, than you were. I mean, when I came to visit, you were yeah, like yeah. a young kid in the in the group. Yeah, they didn't have, there were about three of us that were younger. And mm -hmm. so, anyway, that opened up doors. I did all during college. That was uh, my, that and, of course, delivering pizzas were my two main jobs. Oh, yeah. yeah and yeah. I did a lot of magic shows back then, a lot of clown stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh and and the great Doug I, Linsky, yeah, Doug Linsky. <laughs> and I'd get into, I got into little groups of people. I did the uh, that that sort of uh, wealthy. What's the big oh, the, 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 the big, key uh, club? The key club, the Kiwanis club. I can't remember the club on. Uh, I should remember it, but I got into a lot of those. If once you got into those communities, then you'd get into a bunch of shows. Mm -hmm. So uh, Olson Hills, that community. Oh yeah, yeah, I did stuff for them, and then I did. Uh, I can't think of this other one, but anyway, so but that the, kept me busy. But the but community it was centers, actually, the community, what's that? the community centers, and the country clubs, and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I also did uh, with Ramona. She got us shows, I think, both both for the high end shows, and I did a lot of shows for poorer people mm -hmm. uh, that. I don't actually know how they afforded it, but, uh, and they were probably more grateful that always that's the case. Same with delivering pizzas. <laughs> they always usually get tip you better and, and uh, were very responsive, Yeah. but my shows were chaos. So I sometimes had kids <laughs> running around the house with my magic stuff, <laughs> my valuable magic stuff, oh, boy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. but it didn't bother me because that's, it was just fun to me. I don't know why. Yeah. So. All right, I, that's, uh, that's awesome. I told you I'd be going down rabbit trails, Doug, and here we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Evidence thereof. I right, let's get back. Let's try to get back on the outline a little bit now. If memory serves me, we did talk about you coming to Knoxville, and then you're doing a new thing, and then you worked at the the ranch helping um, yeah, yeah. people with addictions and homelessness issues, trying to get their lives back together. Um, now you're applying the church model. How now? When we first started this interview, you mentioned that you were an Anglican priest. So we got to talk about. We got to come back okay. around. What? How did you get from being um, a house church a rhetoric uh, background person leading a community? Now all of a sudden, you're you're getting into more of a formal thing going on. And tell me about what happened in between. 
Okay, so I do the house church. I started, I actually start, did one attempt at the house church, which kind of fizzled out. And we started, we tried it again in 2000. And my goal was to do, to form a community of people. And then I would do retreats on various topics that dealt with different parts of church history. Mm -hmm. I was particularly interested in the Celts from the fifth to eighth century. And so uh, this was my way of doing education in a non-formal way uh, with people that could, that may be college educated, educated, or maybe people that are not college educated. It would be a place where everybody's on an equal standing and everybody can participate. And so I did a lot of retreats and, um, and that was mostly during the, the, the early two thousands, uh, and, uh, through say two, 2000 through 2010. And, um, essentially what happened in our house church, we had a building. We actually had a building. Everybody in the church had a key. So they could use it anytime they wanted. Um, and we had move, uh, movie nights. I did regular movie nights there. And we had retreats there. We had people, uh, I, we'd get there on Sunday morning. And there'd be, uh, my, my uh, some of the teens would be, uh, sleeping there on the couches. <laughs> I had to wake them up. <laughs> we're going to do church here in a little while. Um, uh, <laughs> we put a library. I have a lot of, you know, a lot of books and then a friend of mine had books. So it was a pretty substantial library that oh, we yeah. put in the building. Mm -hmm. Anybody right. could use them. Anybody could check out the books. When you walk, when you, I remember going into that building and looking at those books all around. Every wall was covered with a bookcase. It, it reminded me of back in the, uh, what was that big library in, in, in UT? The uh, the mag, what is it called? The McWhirter or McSomething. I thought it was back <laughs> in college again. I mean, there yeah. were books everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it was it was quite a, a, a library, and then we did a lots of uh, sort of, uh, you know, like what would you you would call house concerts, but it was in this little building. It's a teeny building, but we made it look like a living room. And so I had, uh, I don't know, you probably weren't in town then, but I had a band called the Salters. Did you ever see them? No, but I do remember when you brought the seventy sevens to a local uh, school. There oh yeah, yeah, the Mike Rowe. That oh. was a great concert. But no, oh, yeah, that them. was. So I, I brought this one <laughs> band. <laughs> These were anarchists. I ain't going to study war no more. Uh, it was right around when uh, we were at war, or started the Iraq War, I guess, right before it or after it. They were, uh, some girl in the church just said, hey, I, I think these people might be fun. Uh, they uh, are, were anarchists, and some, many, most of them didn't smell as though they'd taken a bath in a long time. Uh, but they were also sort of philosophical, so they loved my library. They loved... Uh, uh, Kierkegaard and uh, other philosophical thinkers and so they, they'd come and perform and then uh, we'd sit up all night and talk philosophy
or, or, or their interests in it, their specific interests. Jockaloo, if any people are familiar with Jockaloo, but sort of anarchist type people. How do you spell? Uh, how do you spell that last name? Jockaloo. E L L U L. For people who want to look it up. And so he was. Uh, he, he wasn't really an anarchist, but he did believe democracy was an illusion. And so these people, uh, when I wanted to write them a check, only one person had a driver's license. They, uh, they were definitely, uh, some of them were really off the grid. They, when they first came in, literally, they had, they had long, long hair and beards. They looked like they'd come out of the forest. But they were pretty cool. They had lots of great ideas. And their music was, uh, it's, un, uh, it's, it's sui generis, you say. They had their own uh, gigantic drums and uh, uh, it, it sounded like a sound that, uh, no sound, no music that you're normal used to hearing uh but it was fascinating i was absolutely fascinated and while they play <laughs> this is uh would freak some people out And I don't have, I'm, I'm not saying this, I don't have political persuasions in, in any of these ways, but uh, they put on a slideshow that showed bombs and people dying and trying, it was, it was clearly very political. And I thought, oh my goodness, uh, some people are going to freak out. But uh, I'm fascinated because I like to hear people from all different opinions. So I was fascinated by them. They had lit incense in the room and, and we had a giant crowd to hear these people. And uh, so this is the kind of stuff we would do. Then I might have the next week have a very mellow person with a guitar sing. <laughs> now, the we had everything go on. Let me go back just a second. I, the name of that band that was so wild. Tell us again. I think we kind of skipped over it earlier. Oh, Salters. And that's P S A. Yeah, P S A L T E R S. There's still a, a version of the Salters around. They're connected. Some of you are familiar with Shane Claiborne. Uh, He's from Blunt County. The guy that's a, a uh, he's very involved in social activism in uh, I think Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. I think it's Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. I can't remember. But anyway, they he, they were connected with him a little bit, mm-hmm. and uh, they're very interesting. I'm still I have one of them still come through. He he's not part of that group anymore, but he he comes through and does the uh, he, he lives on the land in Michigan, and uh, that whole back to the land movement. Uh, so, anyway, that was the kind of stuff we did. We did it, all kinds of it, just all over the map, and and from all different directions, conservative or people on the progressive. It, I was, I was having all kinds of people participate. But in two thousand eight, we had a fire in that building, mm. and uh, we lost some of the books, not the majority, uh, and but we lost our equipment, and and it. Mm pretty much devastated us. Mm. Uh, I had to, we couldn't afford to get it all fixed. We had insurance, but not enough to, mm. to do. So everything was moved into my basement and some of it in a storage locker. And I cleaned all the books by hand wow. and uh, from the smoke damage. Mm-hmm. And I just, everything sort of moved into my basement. We, we did stuff in my basement. Mm. Uh, and so we became a little bit, that, that house group became a little smaller Mm-hmm. And uh, 
well, the same year, 2008, you know, that was the economic meltdown. Oh, yeah. So I was writing for a, a web web company, a company then, and uh, they cut most of their in, their internet team or a good chunk of the internet team. Yeah. And I uh, because I was as a writer, often you're in a, a more vulnerable position than designers. Hmm. Uh, I was part of those who were cut. I so bet, I bet they wouldn't do that now. I bet they wouldn't do that now. <laughs> Not with <laughs> internet as valuable as flip flops since then. <laughs> yeah, I know. At that particular company, I had to. I was not allowed to use the word blog when I tried to sell them on blogging. <laughs> I had to call it a content management system. Oh wow! Well, but of course. Uh, anyway, that devastated me financially, and uh, mm -hmm. I couldn't fund a lot of things I'd done with our house church, mm -hmm. and 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 so I, I and I was. It just caused a little bit of stress, so I couldn't. Anyway, it just ended that kind of era. We still were a house church. We still met, but I didn't do as many retreats. We didn't meet as often. Mm -hmm. And uh, But while we had been meeting all those years, we also did use uh, elements of liturgy because I was always wanting to learn from every aspect of church history, particularly I used a lot of art. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we did elements of liturgy. And uh, coming from a background that as, as many East Tennesseans, there's a real suspicion of written words when it relates to worship, uh, although people sing songs that are written. <laughs> and that's not really any different. Every church has a form of liturgy. It's a form, It's an organized form of worship. And, and the ancient the, the liturgy, liturgies you see in Anglicanism and, and in Lutheranism and even in the Catholic Church, these are ancient liturgy, ancient prayers that go back over a thousand years. Mm -hmm. So they're not uh, like something, some, but like like some church, uh, something somebody wrote this week, which is fine. I like freshly written things too, mm -hmm. but to tap into ancient history and to connect the past and the present—that's what got me into, interested toward Anglicanism. Mm -hmm. Was this connecting of the past, the present, the future, and and that does have to do with some philosophical ideas that I won't get into, but. Mm -hmm. um, so I was doing some lectures for uh, on, on Torah in that period. That was one of the ways I was trying to make money. But <laughs> Torah as in the law, right. the Old Testament law. And and, what, and I was even speaking at a Messianic church some because what is the law? What does the Torah teach us and how, did, how, how do they study it? And how do we think about it? And how could it shape the way a business is run? Mm -hmm. uh, so I talked to businessmen back in that period. I was doing business, these little series of lectures for a group of businessmen. So anyway, I ended up doing a series of lectures on Torah for some Anglican priests. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said, "We, yeah, you need to become an Anglican priest. <laughs> <laughs> so they got me to go to England. And we went to England in 2010 and uh, got me on board. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in my mind, I thought I could connect it with the house church. This sounds odd, but... Because both things were not rooted in uh, uh, an American commercialism, which is what church kind of felt to me like. A lot of these big churches, I'm not opposed to any of them, but it felt like it was just a, I don't know what it felt like. Good morning, my brothers and my sisters. Thank you for joining us for the Swinton at his Miracle Faith Prickly Heat Telethon of Love. Coming to you live from the studios of KRAP in downtown Hollywood, California. 
As you may or may not have heard, a few nights ago, I, the Reverend Dr. Edward Daniel Taylor, had a dream. You know what's funny, but it seems about divine providence. Every time I have that chili onion supreme from Wally's Wiener World, I'm visited in this manner. Can I have an amen? Amen. <laughs> anyway, I heard a voice and it spoke to me that said, You, my son, are my special appointed, anointed, and disjointed prophet sent by me to heal my people from this hellish affliction known as the prickly heat. I was told I needed $10,000 if I'm going to make this thing work, and that if we didn't reach this divinely inspired faith goal, our ministry would go off the air, and the Great Commission would go unfulfilled, and the end times would have to be postponed, and all those people who wrote all those books would be scoffed at, and Bill Donahue would become president, and Robert Tilton would make it to prime time, and would cost me in the rating. You can see by the urgency of our situation, we need your help now. For 10000 I mean a $10 pledge, you can be sure to have been healed of an ingrown toenail. For a mere $25, you can get rid of that troublesome prickly heat. For $35, you can get rid of that frisbee finger. And for $100, you can kiss your festering gumball goodbye. <laughs> uh, these were outside and they were connected. Both actually had deep historical roots and, and were a little bit older than the American uh you know this week brand new every week and so that's what got me uh, going down that direction and uh i was given a lot of freedom uh to still try to do some of my experimentals so i was kind of pulling two things together the old and the new and uh well, that's me... sort of how i got into that vein and we're going to find out more about the old and new with a second part interview with Doug Floyd. Do tune in next episode and hear a little bit more about what he has to say. And we're going to be listening to hear what his wife has to say. His wife, Kelly, that is. Here's some snippets from next time's interview with Doug Floyd. So she graduated in 88. We get married in 88. So she's 18 and we get married, what, a month after you turn 18. And uh, two weeks later, we move on to a ranch with alcoholics and drug addicts. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, let's just start off the marriage with, with a little sandpaper and grit. Probably about 1.30 that afternoon, he sent me a text and said, asked me, are they making you wait in another room? And so I was thrilled to hear from him and to know he was alive. We're all praying for Doug to get better. Um, because, you know, one thing, Doug, you got to come to the reunion here in July. You're going to be doing some magic, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, Kelly can tell you I've been... He's been collecting more. <laughs> it's been an excuse to collect a few more things. Okay, so what we're going to do, we're going to kind of do a David Copperfield, right? We're going to make that lighthouse disappear, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to cap the evening off, you know. It'll be dark by then, and nobody can see how we you know, moving out of the way or something. <laughs> All right. Well, great. Yeah. Well, we will definitely see you and everybody else listening at the reunion, July 9th coming hey. up and everybody get your tickets in. Um, you know, don't wait for the last second on this. We got bills to pay July 9th at the Knoxville lighthouse on bomb drive, B A U M bomb drive there. Uh, got a nice little river there. We have a deck. You can go outside, have fun, come inside. We're going to play video games. Lots of entertainment, dancing, fun, food, buffet style. Y'all, come on now. Let's make this thing beautiful. Yeah. Okay, get ready to be amazed. Up next, he's won 20 Emmy Awards. He's walked through the Great Wall of China. He's made the Statue of Liberty disappear. Tonight, he's going to blow your mind. America, give it up for the legendary Doug Linsky. Thank you.
Yes, we do have a reunion coming up, folks. And if you've not gotten your tickets, please do so before May 1st when we have a first ticket price increase. It's going to go up. And then on June the 1st, it's really going to go up. So I really encourage everyone, please purchase your tickets as soon as you can. Right now, we're approaching about 70 attendees. The building holds about 375 to 400 people before we start getting into fire marshal issues. If it's a nice day, we can go out on the deck and increase our odds of more room and therefore lessen the chance getting kicked out when uh, Fire Marshal Bill comes in there with his rotating red hat and tells us to leave because we're a danger to ourselves and others. So please do tune in. And also remember, tune in for the second part of Doug's interview. It's going to get really interesting. Doug had some um, down-in-the-weather issues himself, um, and we're going to talk all about that and get more details from Kelly, his wife. Find out about what's been going on with him. So if you haven't already bought your tickets, please do so. It's very, very simple to do, even for people who don't do electronic thing bobs. You can just send a check to the P.O. Box. And that's all on the Facebook page, by the way. If you don't do Facebook, let me tell you what the P.O. Box is. It's 17034 Nashville, Tennessee, 37217. That'll be in the show notes. Um, also, um, you can just make the check out to Big Blue 40 or Big Blue Ryu, however you want to do it. It doesn't really matter. It's going to all go toward uh, the event. So we'll see you July the 9th. If you're interested in becoming an interviewee, please send correspondence to the following email address, also listed in the show notes. Send all correspondence to FHSBigBlue1982 at gmail.com. Again, that's FHSBigBlue1982 at gmail.com. I don't know. You got, I mean, you got the words. I don't know what else to say about it. It's kind of self-explanatory. Right? Okay.
That was another song from the Salters that we mentioned during the interview. And here is the other band we mentioned, the 77s, that Doug was able to bring to Alcoa one year. When I gave 
Desperate 